Yeah. All right. You have your Bibles, the book of Jeremiah, book of Jeremiah. Going to do a little bit of work tonight on it. I got an email today. Someone said the following. The first installment was good. I had enough spiritual reflection for me to go all summer. You've put up three one-hour messages so far. We're not in June yet. I don't know if I can keep up this pace. So I I don't know why people can't keep up with that pace, but okay. But um, we're going to add a fourth hour. So this is hour number four on the book of Jeremiah. So let's do a couple of things. The goal tonight is very simple. We're going to work on timestamps and contemporary kings. Timestamps and contemporary kings. We're going to go back to the visions just briefly, try to clean that up a little bit about the almond tree, try to do a little bit of work on that. And then we're going to look at one verse that kind of references the sins that Jeremiah was called to basically call them out for. And we're going to just do a little bit of work on them, at least one, well, probably all of them. We'll do a little bit of work on that. So that's, that's our goal, those, those three things. Timestamps and contemporary kings, uh, visions and sins. So you could just put time, visions, and sins is the goal tonight, to look at time, visions, and sins. Or we could say times, plural, visions, plural, sins, plural. You could possibly do it that way if you want to kind of know where we're going tonight, what we hope to accomplish, all right? So let's jump in. When you start studying the book of Jeremiah, if you start trying to outline the book of Jeremiah, you start trying to interpret the book of Jeremiah, you, you do any, any, any attempt to understand it, you find that it can be extremely, extremely difficult. Again, some sources would say one of the most difficult books to interpret, but we've read that how many different times. It, it seems like every time you open a commentary and you get ready to study the book of the Bible, someone somewhere will say... It's one of the hardest to understand. At the same time, we constantly claim how easy it is to interpret things and how the Bible is so clear and we have the Holy Spirit to teach us. And then we turn around and say, but this is hard to understand. I think it really depends on who you listen to, right? I think sometimes you listen to those who who really dig in and study, they have one perception on, on the difficulties and the complexities of it. And then if you just like at the normal, general, kind of just church level where everything is just to be made simple, then we always talk about how easy it is and how we can all understand it, even though nobody ever realizes, well, if it was that easy, then why do we have no agreement on anything? But I digress. The point is, no matter what you study in the Bible, it's always filled with complexities and difficulties. And one of the things that make the book of Jeremiah somewhat difficult is it is not in chronological order, right? which raises lots of questions, okay? So I told you that my original plan was I was going to offer a full detailed outline. And then I backed up and said, nope, we'll just kind of outline it as we move through the book, right? And so we did a little bit of work on Jeremiah chapter 1 Sunday night. We kind of just referenced that chapter as kind of Jeremiah's calling. We did break the chapter down into kind of a a semi-outline. I had a lot of different ideas not really trying to nail it down to give people the ability to work on it themselves. But I want to back up a little bit tonight, and we're going to do a couple of things here. I want to just look at some passages in the book of Jeremiah where dates are found, or at least some type of time stamp is offered, okay? 
And we'll just look at this and we'll see how this kind of works, all right? So if you go to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2, you'll get some kind of a concept of time, right? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2, because we read this. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Now, let's just do this. If you have a Bible dictionary, I don't know if this is actually going to work, but let's try it. Look up Josiah. Look up Josiah. Look up Josiah and see if it gives a date for his reign. I've got some dates right here, but... Josiah, J-O-S-I-A-H. Look for the one who was king of Judah. Sixteenth king, very good. Does it give dates for his reign? Okay, no dates there. Okay. Well, most say his reign ends in 609, all right? Most say it begins in 640, or at least some. I, I, when I say most, I can't say most. Some, at least to one Bible handbook, I should say, they have 640 to 609 B.C. 640 to 609. So in the 13th year of his reign, right, according to Jeremiah 1.3, right, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign, then you have at least some idea possibly when that occurs, right? Yeah. If it starts in 640. Okay, well, you guys do the math. Yeah, you can, you can figure it out. But that gives you at least some, it gives you a possible time range, right? Yeah. Gives you a possible time stamp. So there's one. So at least the book starts with one. Now go to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. Jeremiah 3, 6. Everybody there? The Lord said also unto me, In the days of Josiah the king, hast thou seen that uh, that which backsliding Israel hath done. She is gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Now this also is a word that comes when? During Josiah's reign. So chapter 1, verse 2, Josiah's reign. Chapter 3, verse 6, Josiah's reign. Now what would be interesting if you read everything in between that, does all of that apply to Josiah's reign or does it jump, does it lose any correlation or connection those are the things to look for. But those are at least two timestamps. Go to, uh, uh, I was going to say Jerusalem, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 18. Jeremiah 22, 18. Jeremiah 22, 18. Everybody there? Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, right? The son of 
Josiah, king of Judah, thou shalt not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. All right? That's in Jehoiakim. That seems to be dealing with then Jehoiakim. Now, when did Jehoiakim reign? Do we know? You can look in the Bible dictionary again. See? Okay, you could possibly be right, okay? <laughs> yeah, J-E-H-O-I-A-K-I-M. And we have Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, right? But Jehoiakim. Page 639. All right, 609 to 598. 609 to 598. All right. Joy Kim versus Joy Kim. Yeah. 609 to 598. Well, oh, oh, hang on. We got to look at all of the ones for Joy Kim, all right? We got to look at all the ones. So Jer, uh, Jeremiah twenty two eighteen. So Jeremiah one two and three six is Josiah's reign. Everybody got that? Next twenty two eighteen is Jehoiakim's reign. Look at twenty five one. Twenty five one. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of. Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We get, a, we get some dates there, do we not? All right. How about 26 1? How about 26 1? In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came the word from the Lord uh, saying. Now, please note, 26 1 says, In the beginning of the reign. Everybody see that? What did the last one say? In the fourth year. Now that seems to be going out of order, is it not? Okay, that's what I want you to see. I want you to see how things can be out of order. Go to the 35-1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Right? So you do get time stamps, but sometimes the time stamps are clearly not in any order. Does that make sense? Which proves it's not in chronological order. How about, uh, that was 36.1? Okay, go to 36.1. 36.1. And it came to pass in the... Fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Now we're back to the fourth year. Is it in order? No. Okay. So I just want to make sure you see this for yourself. 45-1. 45-1. Okay, 45-1. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spake unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the mouth of, Jer- of, of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying. Everybody, we're back to the fourth year again. All right? Does everybody see how that plays out? All right, so let's go through this in 
So when we're looking at timestamps, we see a timestamp for Josiah's reign at chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 6. We see timestamps for Jehoiakim's reign in 2218, 25-1, 26-1, 35-1, 36-1, and 45-1. Right? Next, look at 21-1. Right, go to chapter 21, verse 1. 21.1, the word which came in, uh, unto Jeremiah and the Lord when King Zedekiah. Now we have King Zedekiah. When is King Zedekiah reign? You can look him up in the Bible dictionary. Well, yeah, y'all can, can get into all that. I'm just looking for timestamps right now, okay? But go to Zedekiah. Yeah, 597 to 586. So, please note, in chapter 21, look, 22, we had Jehoiakim's reign, right? 25-1, 26-1, 35-1, 36-1, was Jehoiakim. Now, in 20, in, and then, so, all of a sudden, in chapter 21, what do we have? We have Zedekiah. Yep. All right. Everybody see that? All right. Uh, his reign was 597 to 586. All right. 597 to 586. Now go to 24. Go to 24.1. Right. Well, just look, let's look at 24.1, okay? All right? Um, I don't know if 24.1 is going to be the one I want, but that's, we'll, we'll look at it. It's listed in some books, well, so we'll look at it. 24.1, the Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord after that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon, all right? So that one mentioned some other, ki some other kings, not Zedekiah, but just go look at this. Go down to uh, verse 8, 24.8. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in the land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. Now, there we have, once again, Zedekiah mentioned. You see him there, right? Go to 27.3, I believe. Twenty-seven three. Now, if you'll note, Look at 27.1, just so that you see this. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came the word unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Then go down to verse 3, and send them to the king of Edom, and to the king of Moab, and to the king of the Amorites, and to the king of Tyrus, and to the king of Zidon, by the hand of the messengers which come to Jerusalem unto 
Zedekiah king of Judah. So Zedekiah is mentioned again there, right? Right? That's 27.3, right? Okay. Then look at, I think, verse 12 of the same chapter. 27.12. And I spake also to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Everybody see it there? Look at chapter 28, verse 1. 28.1, and it came to pass in the same year in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Look at 29.3, I believe. All right. Who's mentioned there? It says whom Zedekiah, it names a number of people, right? And then it says whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent unto Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying. Zedekiah is mentioned there, everybody see that? Look at 32.1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. See that? And then 34.2. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So Zedekiah is mentioned a number of times, is he not? Sometimes he's mentioned just two or three verses after other kings are mentioned. Right? And those other kings ruled at a different time, did they not? All right? So trying to put all of that together sometimes can be like, wait, wait, what happened? And, and sometimes you'll like, wait, so the word came to Jeremiah at this time, and then maybe a couple of chapters later, you're in a completely different king, and then maybe a couple of chapters later, you go back to the previous king. You've got to see that. Now, from a good Bible student perspective, a good Bible student, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? And I, I think I'm seeing a comment on the computer. Okay. Well, not only is it out of order, what else should that tell you? As a good Bible student, someone trying to interpret. I'm going to open up this. Okay. Do what? Uh, I don't know if time stamps would, would lead me to a, a figurative interpretation. What else could it tell you? What else? Okay, all right, Twyla's uh, giving me dates for some of the kings. All right, thank you very much. All right. For whom? Yeah, Jeremiah was a prophet for about 40 years. Yeah, about 40. I think 40 is what they typically say, maybe maybe 41. Okay, right. So, but the, po- the point I want you to see is that it's not in order. That's, uh, so, let's just not get, let's not get sidetracked. We're going to make sure we stay right here, okay? It's not in order. Now, if you're reading your Bible and you realize the book is not in order, what should that tell you as a good Bible student? Okay. It does, I, I understand it tells us it's not in order, but it's got to give you another kind of clue on the book. <laughs> it's got to give you another clue. Oh, the, 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 oh, oh, is it, 
that the author. Okay, well, it, it may give us some indications of when it was put together, okay? But as a good Bible student, what does it tell you as a Bible student? I mean, come on, you're, you're, you all read and study the Bible. What should it tell you as a Bible student? If the, con if the content was not, if the content of the book is not laid out in chronological order, then how is it laid out? There are only a couple of options. If you're watching a movie and the movie is not in chronological order, what, do you, what is it telling you? Okay, forget movies, okay? Let's not, try, let's not, let's not go to movie film analysis. Okay? Let's go back to a book, okay? If the book is not in chronological order, that's telling you something, right? It's telling you that, the, that you now have to understand how the book is being put together. So if it's not in chronological order, what are your other options? There's only a couple. Okay, there we go. Okay, good. Okay, either this is grouped by random events. So you would look at everything. Okay, is this just like this event, this event, this event? Therefore, the, the order of the event is not important. So don't try to read too much into the order of the event. Just focus on the event that is recorded. All right, that would be a possible idea. Now you can read through Jeremiah and see if that works. What would be another possible? Bobby got you at least one. So Bobby, Bobby gave the class 50, 50 points, okay? We need someone to get you to the, to the next 50 points, All right? Twi oh, wait, wait, wait. Someone's answering. Okay, uh, someone said categorical, okay? That's kind of going the direction. If it's not in chronological, it can either be grouped by events. I don't know if that's going to play itself out. I don't think it's going to play itself out. Or it's grouped in thematic themes or topics. Like, hey, this theme goes here. This theme goes here. This theme goes here. So then you look to go, does these have a common theme? Is the theme broken down by each individual chapter? Or are, do we group chapters together? Do we say, okay, in other words, do you take the book and go, okay, let's find all the passages that we know happened during the reign of, who's the first one? And group all of them together. And then do we group all of the passages that took in the next king? Jehoiakim, right? Okay, Jehoiakim. Then the next one was... Well, uh, the ones that we've covered so far. Zedekiah. Then Zedekiah, right? And then do we group them all together and go, okay. So we take, do we group them together by the reign of the king? Do we group it together by just the events it's recording? Or do we group it together by theme or topic? That's what you would be looking for as a good Bible student because you'd be like, clearly either this is just compiled randomly and it has no rhyme or reason which then that would tend to go against which concept? If it's just randomly thrown together, there's no rhyme, there's no reason in its order, and it doesn't matter. Well, some people believe that the structure of the Bible is just as much a part of the inspiration of Scripture as the words of the text. So then do you believe the order of a book is a divinely inspired or do you believe it's not divinely inspired? If you don't believe it's divinely inspired, a lot of people make a big deal out of chronology of a book. 
They'll make a big deal out of it, right? This is the order God wanted it in. Well, if this has no tangible order, then either you have to change your doctrine on the order is divinely put together and say it isn't divinely put together, or you say, because a lot of times we interpret entire books based like, this is here because the entire book hinges on it. And we believe God set that chapter here for a reason, right? I mean, people do that with the Psalms. They do it with, they do it with all kinds of books. So either you have to throw that concept completely out and say, no, this was just randomly put together by someone. And we don't know why it was out of order, but it's out of whack. And that's just the way it is. Or you're like, no, 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 no. This is the way God wanted it. If it's the way God wanted it, then it's very important for you to figure out why God wanted it that way. So because you can't interpret something if you don't understand the order. I mean, it happens in movies all the time. Linear, non-linear narratives. We talked about that when I've talked about film, how film analysis is just like hermeneutics, right? If it's a non-linear narrative versus a linear narrative, those are key elements in understanding how they're telling the story. Well, if Jeremiah, clearly it's not linear, is it? It's all over the place. So then, do, is it my job as a student to gather the content and go, oh, this is all the stuff that happened under his reign. Here's all the stuff. Trust me, nobody does this in church. Nobody cares. The average church member is not going to do it. They'll still tell you that their interpretation of Jeremiah is the right one. Okay, but they're... Yeah, I'm not telling you which one it is, right? I don't love the, I don't like to give you answers. I like to give you problems, and then you can figure it out, right? But because I mean, I'm hoping that, especially for those who are participating in the Bible study exercise, as you're reading the book, you got to start figuring it out. Like, well, clearly it's not in order. So, what does that mean to me as a student, right? But we're not done with kings, okay? So we got Josiah's reign or time stamps. Josiah's reign. Jehoiakim's reign, Zedekiah's reign, and then guess what else we have? I can't believe we're going to run out of time on this. We're going to have in Egypt. Okay, go to 43.7. 43.7. And we're just looking at passages that gives us some time stamps. There may be some others that offer time stamps. 43.7. So they came into the land of Egypt. Egypt. All right. All right. So, and then look at, uh, I think, verse 8. Or that was verse 8. Uh, verse 7 says it. Um, yeah, ver- well, verse 7 says it. 8, well, you're in the same place. So uh, Egypt is mentioned there. Then 44.1. 44.1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews which dwell in the land of Egypt, and it gives some other places. We won't get into all the places that are mentioned, but we'll get the time. So those are at least some time stamps. Does everybody see those time stamps? All right. uh, Josiah's reign, Jehoiakim's reign, Zedekiah's reign, and uh, and then we have them in Egypt. As the Haley's Bible Handbook says, this quickly shows that the book is a. This quickly shows that the book is not arranged in chronological order. Some late messages come early in the book, and some early messages come late in the book. Does everybody just, everybody just hear that? 
As a Bible student, you have to figure out why. Your options is, oh, just thrown together randomly, nobody cares. Therefore, God is not involved in the structure of a book. Therefore, you have to apply that where? To every other book. And don't make some big deal like, look at how it's put together. It's so brilliant. It's as if God, you, no, because it would just be randomly put together. Right? I mean, either that, the way God operates one way or the other, I mean, it would be random for you to do that. Or, and then once you've determined, well, if you just go with that, or you go with, wait, 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 wait. I don't know if it was just randomly thrown together. Maybe God did this for a reason. And if he did so for the reason, then whose job is to figure out the reason? Ours, because it could greatly influence what? How you interpret the book. Or they go on to say, these messages were delivered orally and perhaps repeatedly for years, possibly before Jeremiah began to write them. The writing of such a book was a long and laborious task. Parchment made of sheep or goat skins were scarce and expensive. It was made into a long roll and wound around a stick. This may in part account for the lack of order in Jeremiah's book. Now they're going with just a natural explanation. It just kind of happened. Just an accident. Now, that's fine. Then don't give me some, oh, the way the books are organized is some divinely inspired, like, okay, either it is or it isn't. Right? Okay. They go on to say, after writing, after writing an incident or discourse, some other utterance delivered previously would be suggested, and he would write it down, in some cases without dating it, thus filling up the parchment as he unrolled it. So basically, hey, whoever put this together, just kind of like, okay, I'm going to throw this here. Oh, wait, Jeremiah said this. Oh, wait, wait. Almost as if that almost sounds very much like God wasn't involved in the process. You see how that gets, that gets dangerous how far you take that. So I'm not saying we have to argue for a divinely inspired order. What, I say, what I'm saying is a good Bible student has to figure out if the order impacts what? The interpretation. All right? And we do have a, at least some time stamps that would allow us to do what? Group passages together. Like, okay, if this passage happened here and this one is a... Did everything happen under that reign in between? Then as you're reading in between, what are you looking for? You're looking for any clue that says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This doesn't fit. I know that didn't happen. And then you can pull that back. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Everybody got that? Okay. That took a little bit longer. All right. Now, I'm just going to briefly give you the contemporary kings of Judah when they just a little bit about their reign and how it may have connected with Jeremiah. All right. Because one of them is very important. Well, all of them are probably important. All right, so we have some time stamps. Now, th this is still time, but it's going to be related specifically to the, the reigns of some of the kings, okay? The first one is Manasseh, all right? Manasseh, 698 to 644 B.C. He reigned 55 years, Jeremiah would have been born during his reign. Uh, 698 to 644 B.C. 
Manasseh, 698 to 644 BC, he reigned 55 years. Who would have been born at that time? Jeremiah. Just remember that king, because that king comes into play as early as Jeremiah chapter 1 on the verse that lists the sins, because we believe those sins go back to Manasseh, and we'll, we'll talk about that, or at least some commentaries believe that. All right? Next. Amon, 643 to 640. 643 to 640. He reigned two years. He reigned two years. That basically, the, the Bible handbook basically says the long and wicked reign of his father Manasseh had sealed the doom of Judah. So he reigned a short period of time. I know they have 643 to 640, but they say he reigned two years. All right. Okay, yeah, that, I'm just saying that's the way they have it listed, right? Josiah is next, 640 to 609. Josiah, 640 to 609, he reigned 31 years is the length they give. And what's significant about Josiah and Jeremiah? Look at chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 2. His ministry begins in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Yes. All right. Yeah, well, the main thing, just remember, he, he, he does a lot of reformation at that time, but it's all just outward because it doesn't change the heart of the people. Just, again, changing law and making people do the right thing does not change what... That would have called him a good one, right. But I'm just saying it doesn't change the heart of the people. All right? Okay, the next one, he reigns only three months, and he was taken to Egypt, and that's Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, if I can say his name correctly. J-E-H-O-A-H-A-Z. At 609, he reigned three months and he's taken to Egypt. Jehoahaz, 609 BC. Next is Jehoiakim, 609 to 596 BC. He reigned 11 years. And guess what? Jehoiakim hated Jeremiah. That's how Jeremiah connects here. He did not like Jeremiah. Next, I believe that's correct. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, that's Jehoiakim, six hundred nine to five ninety eight BC. He reigned eleven years, and he did not like Jeremiah. Next, Jehoiakim, five ninety eight to five ninety seven. He reigned basically three months, and he's taken to Babylon. Jehoiakim, yeah, yeah. And then last, we know the last one, right? Zedekiah. Now, he was, he was, I guess you could classify him as somewhat friendly to Jeremiah. And he reigned for 11 years. 597 to 586. Now, if you have those time frames, and you can, if you find their names mentioned anywhere in the book of Jer Jeremiah, 
We've already looked at we've already looked at some timestamps. That gives you what? Further time, further con concepts of where it is, of where you are in the book. All right. Now, I could give a kind of a timeline of Jeremiah, but I will not there. I just want you to get, what I, the only thing I'm trying to do there is help us, because the book is not in chronological order, I want us to consider that we've got to figure out what to do with it, the content, right? So you either have to try to group it by maybe themes. I don't think that's going to work really well. Maybe timestamps. Maybe that works really well. Or you just say, it doesn't matter. And when you say it doesn't matter, then that has lots of other hermeneutical implications in how you understand the structure of books. Either they're divine or they're not divine. Well, I, I think what you do is when you see where the timestamp starts, you go ahead and just in your mind or on paper, say, okay, this is the timestamp. And as you're reading, you look for any clues if something has changed. And if nothing seems to change, and then you go and all of a sudden you now get to the end of that timestamp, then you may, you would at least have a textual argument that I don't find anything here that supposedly changes. But if you're reading along, you're like, wait a minute. Now, the problem is, you see where the difficulty is, because how knowledgeable are you about those timestamps? If I give you one of those dates, are you going to be able to go, I know exactly what happened during that time? You're probably not. Yeah. Now, right. Yeah, so like you may, you may read some things and you may be like, I don't know. Did that happen? I'm just saying look for anything to at least keep your mind going. Because if you can group it together, then isn't that great? You're like, I got three chapters and I know where this fits in. It may not fit in with the next chapter, but these three chapters happened in this reign during this time. Then the next chapter may jump forward or back, and you're like, and immediately you realize then, from an interpretive process, you can't connect the two. Because what do we always say? Well, typically in hermeneutics, what do we say? Look at the chapter that comes, and look at the chapter that comes. May not work if the book's not in chronological order. Right? That's always an argument about the book of Revelation. Some people believe it's in an order. Some people believe it's not in an order. If it's not in an order, then guess what you can't do? Look at the chapter before. Look at the chapter after. Has major hermeneutical implications that way. Right? Does that make sense? Right? Are, you, are we sure? Okay. Now, quickly, we don't, we're, we got to try to do... Well, let's just go quickly. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 1. Because Stephen brought this up uh, on Sunday night, so I wanted to at least uh, return to it and try to clean it up a little bit. All right, uh, we have two. Vi we have a. Vi we'll call them two separate visions. What, maybe one vision, and he sees two different things, or two separate visions. But um, Jeremiah is given a vision of two things. What are the two things? Or given two separate visions? I would have to look at the text to go which way I should uh, word that. But right now, he sees two different things. What are they? Rod of an almond tree, the seething pot. The seething pot we seem good with, right? So it's, it's a nation coming from the north, and we believe that to be Babylon, okay? We don't seem to have any problem. Commentary, commentaries don't seem to have any problem. Commentators don't seem to have a problem. 
The almond tree is where a lot of people are a little confused. And the reason we're, not, we're a little confused about the almond tree is why? The, the text does not explain it. Or it doesn't appear to explain it. And what, we've, what I put forth as an idea is that it's because it's a play on words and you have to look at the Hebrew to see it. All right? So remember briefly how we looked at it. So go to Jeremiah 1... Um, 11, Jeremiah 111, thank you, Jeremiah 111. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. And remember, if you look up almond tree, right, in the Blue Letter Bible app, do you remember what we found? Remember the Hebrew word was, di- okay, wait, I got to close Spreaker. I got to close Spreaker really quick. All right. Here we go. It was this Hebrew word. Everybody remember? Strong's H8247, Shakade. Shakade. Shakade, right? Everybody remember that? Shakade. And it means? An almond tree, okay, right? It means an almond tree, right? So, hey, what seest you, Jeremiah? And he's like, I see an almond tree, all right? But when you look at the word, uh, in fact, if you look, if you go back to the interlinear, right, of, of 111, because uh, remember last time I took us to Jeremiah 31, 28 to look for the Hebrew word for watch, remember? Right? Because I was just trying to show you. But if you look at this, um, so, moreover came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, What thou seest, Jeremiah, and I said, a rod of an almond tree. The almond tree is, what Hebrew word? Shakade. All right. If you look at, is it verse, uh, is it verse 12? Hang on, verse 12. If I can get it to open. Here we go. Verse 12. Then the, then the Lord said unto me, Thou hast well seen, for will hasten I, and hasten is this Hebrew word. Strong's H8245, Shakad. 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 And Shakad means to wake, watch, awake, be alert, to keep watch, be uh, wakeful over, or to be wakeful, all right, or to hasten. All right, so the idea is when you see the almond tree, right, which is which Hebrew word? Shakade, then God will hasten, he will watch, which is which Hebrew word? Shakad, right? They are very similar. It's a play on words. So in a roundabout way, what is God telling him? When you see the almond tree, you will know that I am Hastening, hastening, watching to keep my word. As one source put it this way, the Lord began the first vision by asking Jeremiah, what seest thou? Almond trees were still and uh, are common in Israel. When Jeremiah gave his answer, an almond tree, the Lord said he was correct and used a play on words to give the meaning of the vision. An almond tree is what in Hebrew? Shakade. Uh, and the verb meaning to watch is sakad. So when Jeremiah said, I see, 
which is which Hebrew word? Shakade. God said, Sakad, I am doing, watching to make sure my word is fulfilled. Every time Jeremiah would see an almond tree, he could be reminded that God will hasten to do what? To keep his word. He will hasten, he will watch to keep his word. So it was giving him basically almost like you see an almond tree. Almond trees are all over the place. Whenever you see an almond tree, what do you know? Right. So in a sense, when you see the almond tree, you remember which Hebrew word? Shakad. Okay. Knowing that God will be shakad, hastening, watching to do what? To keep the word. It was a play on words to do so. Kind of pretty awesome, isn't it? Okay, pretty awesome, I think. And so that, that's the best we can come up with, right? Uh, look, put it this way. If it's not that, nobody has any clue what's going on, okay? But it is interesting that both, because I went to 31 to just show you where the Hebrew word was because I didn't have time. I remember I told you I was throwing out as a hypothesis, right? And then Stephen afterwards said, hey, the, the other Hebrew word is right there in chapter 1. It's right, it's in verse 12, right? Or and, and uh, so I wanted to clean that up a little bit. I know I'm having to hurry. But just to understand what's going on, it's kind of a really powerful thing. Now, remember, that's, and on one hand, you can say, I mean, we may not, have, not see an almond tree, but it's a reminder to us that God will do what? He will hasten to keep his word. He will keep his word. We may, may not hasten in our time frame, okay? Because, I mean, Jeremiah had to do a lot of suffering, so he could have been like, could you speed this process up a little bit? But God will keep his word. Now, all right, so there's the time stamp. There's the vision. Now, go to Jeremiah 1, verse 16. All right, Jeremiah 1, 16. God speaking to Jeremiah, I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who hath forsaken me, have burned incense unto other gods, and worship the works of their own hands. Now, I mentioned this a little bit. I think I even mentioned it on another podcast. That verse 16, I think, is very instrumental. Now, I did not articulate this clearly on Sunday night, So I want to try to explain, I think, the best way to read this. In verse 16, when God says he's going to utter his judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, the wickedness there is being used as a generic catch-all, but the specifics of that wickedness are listed after. So I'm going to judge you for this wickedness, and here are the specifics of that wickedness, and those specifics are broken down into how many things? Three things. Three things. Everybody see that? All right. In other words, I'm coming after their wickedness. And for you to know what wickedness I'm referring to, there's three specific parts to it. All right. Now, before we break them down in the text, I want you to write this word down. All right. I want you to write the word T-A-R-G-U-M. T-A-R-G-U-M. Targum. All right? Now, if you ever read Bible commentaries or study Bibles, you'll hear the Targum sometimes referenced or quoted from. Anybody know what the Targum is? 
Okay, well, it's usually in commentaries. It's, it's, it's referenced a lot. It's an ancient Aramaic paraphrase or interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. It's of a type made from about the first century A.D. when Hebrew was declining as a spoken language. Sometimes some refer to it as a paraphrase. Some refer to it as an interpretation. I think I've even had some refer to it as a translation. But it's the Targum, okay? Now, the reason I mention this, if you look at John Gill's famous uh, commentary on the book of Jeremiah, when he gets to 116, he just quotes the Targum. He just said that. John Gill's like, hey, here's what the Targum said. Here it is, right? The, they know better than I do. Here's what they said. So we're going to look briefly at what he, how he quotes the Targum here uh, because it's, I think it's important. All right, here we go. John Gill writes this. Who have forsaken me? Their sin number one, right? All right. Their wickedness first is a, a wickedness of them forsaking him. This is how John Gill places it in his commentary. The Targum is, I quote, who have forsaken my worship for to forsake the public worship of God, attendance on his word and ordinances, or to forsake the assembling of themselves together for such a purpose is to forsake the Lord himself, the fountain of living waters, and this is to forsake their own mercies. So he says the way they started forsaking God is they started forsaking what? They stopped assembling themselves together for worship. They stopped. They basically started forsaking God by not worshiping him, pulling back from worship. Now, always remember, whenever we stop, whenever we forsake the worship of God or pull back from the worship of God, it always creates a vacuum. Right? You know, we can state it this way. People were, we will worship something. All right, everybody got this? Now, I'm, I'm not quoting John Gill now. I'm giving you my own philosophy, my own theory here, okay? We, we, in a sense, because of the way humans are made, we will worship something. Because is that not true in ever? I mean, I don't care where you go. You can go to Africa. You can go anywhere. You find, it doesn't matter how ancient the tribe of people may be. Doesn't matter their race, doesn't matter their background. What will you find out about those tribes of people? They worship something. Right? Now you could say this explains what explains is we're created in the image of God. God is a spirit, and there's a spiritual aspect to us. So we will look for something spiritual, but we will worship something. So the minute you withdraw from worshiping God, like you're really not giving yourself over to, to meaningful worship. Whether it's a symbol, we could get into a whole discussion about whether you're assembling yourself. People can come to church and not worship God. So, so just because you assemble doesn't mean you worship. But if you're really not giving yourself over to worshiping God in, in, in spirit and in truth and thinking, and because spirit, we don't believe that's the Holy Spirit. That means our spirit. Our spirit is actively involved in worshiping God in a true way. The minute that falls apart, the minute we withdraw from that, we will fulfill that vacuum with we will fill that vacuum with something. And what we will fill it with typically is the worship of something that will benefit whom? You can just basically state it this way. Whatever we worship, we're ultimately worshiping us. So if we're not worshiping God, we will worship ourselves. To forsake God, what John Gill says is they forsook him 
in their worship. They stopped worshiping the true God. And so they had to replace that worship with something. Well, what's the, go back to Jeremiah 1. Well, look, no, the next, the second thing. They have forsaken me and burned incense unto other gods. They burned incense unto other gods. Back to the Targum, according to John Gill, okay? They burned incense to other gods, to the idols of, gent, of the Gentile. So they started worshiping the idols of the Gentile. Or as the Targum explains it, and he quotes, to Baal, to the queen of heaven, and to others. In other words, there were specific gods that they were going after that the Targum list, right? Baal, the queen of heaven, Ashtaroth, I think is her name. I think it's Ashtaroth who's called the queen of heaven. I think that's her name. Um, I could be, I don't have it in front of me, so don't quote me on it. Uh, and to others. It doesn't really matter the name of the gods. The point is, they forsook God, and then what happens? There's a, power, there's a worship vacuum, and they got to fill that vacuum, and so they start burning incense to other gods, which ultimately is a worship of what? Self. Let me state it again. Idolatry is not the worship of the idol. It's the worship of self. Because you're worshiping that which... Oh, the, remember, idol, where idolatry is, 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 it starts inwardly. We always focus on, oh, make sure that your car doesn't become your idol or your family. No, the idol is always you. The, uh, the, oh, those other things are simply what? Things that pleases you. The, the idolatry is self, right? So they, in fact, this text is going to kind of go with my philosophy here. They forsake the worship of God. They immediately start burning incense, making it look like that they're worshiping other gods. And then look at the last phrase. And they worship the works of their own hands. They worship the works of their own hands. Go to, and if you don't know exactly what that is, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 2. I believe it's verse 8. You can look at it. I believe it's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8. I was looking for where I wrote it down. Yeah, I wrote it down right here. So, yeah, I'm right. It's Isaiah 2, 8. Because I was thinking worshiping the works of their own hands, I was going in a different direction. And I'm not saying it can't apply to other things, but I think it applies. I think this gives us kind of an, a, a definition here. Isaiah 2, 8. Everybody there? All right. Um, their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands that which their own fingers have made and the mean man boweth down and the great man humbleth himself. Therefore, forgive them not. What is the worship of their own hands? The idols. They're worshiping themselves. And back to John Gill quoting the Targum, right? Um, they worship the works of their own hands, idols of gold, silver, brass, and wood, which their own hands formed and carved, and which argued greatly, great stupidity and ignorance. In other words, it argued that they're stupid. Why would it be argued that they're stupid? Well, okay, I, think, I, think the, I think why they're going with why they're stupid is if you just spent an hour building it, and then you bow yourself down to worship to it as God, that's stupid because you just built it. 
Clearly it's not greater than you. But in reality, what are you worshiping? That that idol represents what? Your accomplishment, your ability, your creativity, your genius, your strength. So you're really worshiping what? Self. So I want to make sure you understand. Whenever we pull back from worshiping God, we will replace the worship of God with the worship of self. And with the, that self-worship is always seen where? What is the symptom of self-worship? Idolatry. All right, the symptom of self-worship is idolatry because we will worship those things that make us feel good, that will bring us benefit. Right? Sometimes we can say, I'm worshiping the true God. Remember when uh, they built the golden calf? What did they, what, what did they say about the golden calf? They, 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 they talked about, they spoke of the golden calf as if it was the one who delivered them from Egypt. Why would they do that? Because they were really ultimately just, wor- we, what we'll do is we'll sigh. So you can, you, can, you can say Jesus, you can say God, you can use all the right names, but some cases you're just using that name to ultimately worship what? Yourself. You can build an idol and then almost give it credit for doing what God did, because, but you're ultimately worshiping yourself. Does that make sense? I'm getting some looks like everybody thinks I'm crazy. Okay, all right. I, I, okay. Do what? Okay, you don't understand? Okay, well, what do you not understand? What? Because what, well, I want to make sure we get this. It's very important. Right? Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to, my, my theory is we're worshiping self. That's what I'm going with, okay? My theory is you're either worshiping, you're either worshiping the true God or you're worshiping self. The, the, the pulling back from worshiping God, you will worship self. And the symptoms of self-worship is idolatry because you're going to, you got to have something you got to put there, right? You got to have something. It's just, it's, to me, it's the same thing as Satanism. What is Satanism? What is Satanism? Worship itself. But does they, what do they do? They use religious imagery to, to demonstrate that, right? They have the concept of Satan. They don't worship Satan. They're worshiping self. We, we will always cover up the world because it's, most people won't say, I'm going to worship me. I'm the God that I worship. So we always, we always there's a, almost a sense of we know we can't necessarily say that because that makes us sound what? Insane. Right? So we can just take our worship of self and then attach it and uh, say that we're giving it to this thing or this thing, but we're really worshiping self. We can do the same thing with the God of the Bible. We can say we're worshiping Jesus and worshiping God, and we are not. We're worshiping ourselves, but we're claiming that we're worshiping Jesus or God. And, don't, and we know that has happened for 2,000 years. Because people say, we're worshiping God, we're going to go kill those people and take their land. We're worshiping God, we're going to enslave those people. We're going to, and all say God is doing what? Supporting it and backing it. 
When really, what are you using? God is simply nothing more than what? Just a name for self-worship. Right? We will, we will, we will worship ourselves and call it anything. We will say, oh, and we will build an object, whatever the case may be, but we're worshiping ourselves. When it says they're worshiping the works of their own hands, indicates that they're worshiping themselves. They built it, and guess what it demonstrates? Their power, their ability, their creativity, their genius. They know, obviously, if a person builds an idol, they know they're not worship. They know that that thing is not God. They just built it. So clearly, what are they worshiping then? My, at least in my mind, their self. That's the only option. I mean, you would hope they would be smart enough to not, when they built the golden calf, did they really believe that was the thing that delivered them from Egypt? They just built it, so they know it didn't. But they wanted a symbol. So in that sense, they either were just trying to replace God with something, or in a roundabout way, they were almost taking credit for their own deliverance. And either way, it always comes back to self. Self is the God. It's either going to be the true God or it's going to be self. And when we worship self, we just dress it up. We just dress it up. So those are the three sins. So, uh, so let's qu- quickly review. Right? We have timestamps, right? We have timestamps. And those timestamps gave us uh, specific kings, right? And those uh, specific kings, one, it demonstrated that the book is not in chronological order. It demonstrated, though, that, that um, these kings gives us at least timestamps for us to start co- trying to consider how should we interpret it based off what? On the way this is structured, we have to try to figure out how we should handle it and what should we do. We looked at the contemporary kings of Judah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jeho, Ahaz, uh, Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, all right? We looked at all of them. We got, got us some, some pretty orders. We went to the vision and understood that the almond tree is simply what? God being watchful and hastened to keep his word. Whenever Jeremiah saw the almond tree... God was hastening to his word, all right? And then we have the sins. Wickedness is the general term broken into three parts, and those three parts are forsake God. We believe that's forsaking the worship of God. Second, burning incense, right? And third, worshiping the works of their own hands, meaning that the, the major issue in Judah is going to be that of idolatry. They forsake God and they replace the worship of God with a form of idolatry. So throughout the book of Jeremiah, we'll be talking about idolatry over and over and over. I was going to give an assignment on idolatry, but I'll save that for now. There you go. We'll stop there. Pretty good time. All right, let's pray. Look, I we come before you this evening. Lord, as we continue our reading and thinking and meditating and struggling with the book of Jeremiah, let us see the sin of forsaking the worship of you and replacing it with ourself. Forgive us for that. Let us see that and be convicted by that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...